Welcome to the Go Hack Something podcast, where education and technology meet. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the future is code and why you should care. I'm your host, Will Bushy, author of Wired for Coding, and with me as always is Ross Wickman. Seriously, he's here. How you doing today, Ross? I'm doing fantastic. I'm glad to be back. I've been awfully busy uh, with the newborn. He just uh, turns three months old tomorrow. So um, a little bit of sleep deprivation and some other priorities going on in life. But I've been more than happy to keep up getting the episodes that you've been published and posted and getting the show notes and stuff out there. So it's been a good three months and it's just good to kind of get back into the swing of things and um, be on the podcast a little bit more. I'm not going to be on probably every single episode going forward for a little while, but hopefully um, we can keep up and continue to share some good content. Yeah, so. excellent. Well, it's great to have you back today. Yeah, it's it's great to be back. Did a lot while I was gone. Um, went a couple places for my full-time job, learned a little bit and um, been dabbling on the side still with trying to come up with both topics for this and some stuff, some side projects yeah. that I'm working on. So if I'm not mistaken, yeah. you guys sneak snuck in a vacation somewhere in there too. We did. It was kind of impromptu. It was the last week of my wife's maternity leave and I had some leave building up. So we're like, you know what? Wife can't take any more vacation pretty much the rest of the year. We should do something with her time. So we went, did some zoo and some, uh, yeah, very impromptu week long vacation. It was fun. Family time well spent. So it was good. Yeah. The the future is code. This is a topic that you brought up here today. And I guess I'm not as familiar with it as you. So I thought I'd kind of let you just run with it this morning. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. It's uh, something that we've actually, as me and my organization, uh, have been working on um, quite a bit since the beginning of the year, basically being able to automate certain things and take a lot of the minutia out of our processes. And in the middle of June, I'm pretty sure it was June, um, I went to Washington, D.C. for the AWS, Amazon Web Services Public Sector Summit. And a lot of the sessions that I focused on were scaling um, and automation mm-hmm. and kind of keeping things easily manageable, especially from a public sector standpoint. So we're talking um, federal government, local government, and education, like how these organizations are scaling. And when it comes to cloud specifically, everything, if you're a really good administrator at what you're doing, is basically derived from code. There's a couple of different language, either YAML or SAML, but specific to the AWS platform is a service they call CloudFormation, which basically lets you create any any resource within AWS using lines of code. And you could be as few as 30 lines of code can spin you up a um, virtual machine in the cloud with, you name it, yeah. uh, five terabyte of storage and 32 cores and 128 gigs of RAM, you name it, you can do that. Um, So this has been something that's kind of been near and dear to my heart. And it's just fascinating because everywhere you look now, it doesn't matter if you're a cloud administrator or you're a uh, systems administrator, network administrator on a campus somewhere in the United States, touching physical hardware, or you're doing the sort of of things that you've spoke Mm -hmm. about in the past with coding Raspberry Pis and Adrenos, things like that. Um, Code is really everything that we've been doing, what we've been talking about to date. So I just kind of wanted to touch on some of the things that code can be used for right now and the direction that it's really going. And that's why they said the future is code. The future is here and the future is code. So 
permissions, deployment of resources, all of those things can be done in different um, code repositories or via automation. So using code to have that repetition, consistency, and change control. So for instance, one of the things you work on, you're, you're doing uh, C-level or C++ coding, mm-hmm. and you're making, you name it, uh, some sort of Raspberry Pi, do some function, and you get it to work, then you can actually save that. Yeah, well, one, yeah, you get it to work one time, then you save that. You know that you save it, but you want to make some revisions to it. Well, in the past, without really keeping track of that code or making multiple copies of it, um, you might actually break it and never be able to get it back to working that one time. Or if yeah. you do, you do it completely differently. Well, right? And when you say scale, maybe you could explain a little bit by what you mean by when people are trying to set things up to, to scale automatically. Well, right. Yeah, abs- absolutely. So part of that scaling aspect is being able to do the same thing, identical over and over, like with a click of a button. Yep. So like in, in AWS specifically, we're talking about computing at scale. Maybe you have a web page or maybe you have a, a function running that's running your um, Lambda code or whatever it is that you're running for your Adreno Raspberry Pi, um, MQTT. We haven't really got mm-hmm. real deep into those things, but and the more resources you have hitting it, the more users you have requesting your code per se, it needs more resources on the back end to spin it up. Mm-hmm. So instead of going out there manually saying, all right, I need three more servers and manually configuring those, you have that one template of code that just automatically runs and it spins up and scales your application or your your whatever code is running to the level that is required to take in all yeah. those requests. When those requests stop coming in, then it kind of tapers off and goes back down to a single instance of your code, whatever that might be. Well, I think a good way to think about this too is is that as we scale users or clients onto a service, that machine that they may be started on is going to start to fail. It's going to have too much load. And how do we go from one machine to two machines to eight machines to 100 machines, but not have to have an IT person sit down and reconfigure from scratch from a bare VM that machine or that instance every single time. And the interesting thing I th- uh, that I think a lot of people don't real really understand is that when you move into that virtual world, it's a little bit different on getting those machines set up. You know, it's not it's not exactly the same. They can do things that a physical machine might not be able to do as easily. Like for example, on boot on a essentially a virgin OS, you can have it read a configuration file and then start to install the services that are going to be needed. And then at the end, if you do it correctly, you can have a machine that's completely configured the way you want from a fresh operating system. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly really what is kind of meant by the future is code. So I came from an area of work where I was kind of that server administrator where, all right, somebody came to me and said, I need a server that is just like this. Well, Somebody else might have configured it and manually installed all the different pieces of software that make the server operate the way that customer needed it. And unless that process was documented from beginning to end, like yeah. there's a really, I mean, there's a high percent chance that I'm not going to configure it the way it needs to be or the way it was done before. So then you're going to have two servers that are supposed to do the identical thing operating slightly differently. Well, and not only that, there's 
because you don't own every one of those pieces. So for example, you might be installing a, a, a load balancer on the front end, or maybe you're going to do an Nginx or something like that to just control the internal traffic. Well, that's its own piece and that may have a different version and it may be running independent uh, down a development path than your Apache backend server. So how do you, like you don't want to just clone the machines necessarily and you may not want to start from scratch like you just said and follow a checklist because you might skip a step or maybe something is slightly different on the installation or maybe you get a slightly different version number, which ultimately could cause your service to fail to come up. And now you've got to try to debug a machine that's half half booted. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's part of it as well. So then and then once the even like farther down the road, let's say you get to a point where these machines are both kind of properly configured the exact way you wanted. Some of those dependencies for it to operate at a certain level, those might change. So right. then if you change the dependency, for like, let's talk something as, as basic or simple as just creating a Windows server for file well, sharing. Let's say a Linux and machine, because honestly, who's going to use okay, Windows fine. machine? <laughs> fine, fine, fine. That changes my example entirely, right, but I get where you come from, especially in cloud. Well, you're, you're right, though, because especially in cloud, our environments, we're talking 85, 90% Linux environment, very few Windows servers. But um, what we have is running for domain controllers yeah. and things like that. So if we go with my Windows server example, Windows server might have some version of, let's say, antivirus installed, right? Well, you want to make sure that that same version of antivirus is installed across all your Windows machines that you've automated. But then that version or you want to completely change. You want to go from semantic to McAfee or something like that. And you don't want to have to manually do that process, or you could use some of the other automation tools that are out there. But if you have these packages, these installation packages installed in code, and they're all configured to be automated by a single click, you can update 30 machines at the same time. You just point the operating system or your code to the new installation Mm -hmm. package and the code required to uninstall the old, you can be, 99% 99% certain that that functionality is going to happen across all of your machines at the same time. And they're all going to have the same revision, the same set of information that they require um, for that version of uh, antivirus. But So that same version of antivirus is configured across all the servers at the same time. And better yet, you don't have to document in um, standard operating procedure what you did and when. It can all be saved in your code. And when we talk a little bit further right. about actually where we keep this code and how do we keep it all in check and in line, um, there's versioning and dating and everything else that can be tied to that. Yeah. Now, do you guys do this at your work now or is this something you guys are starting we, to integrate we in? We do this right now. We've been basically doing it since the beginning of the calendar year. Um, and I don't want to get too advanced in some of these topics because we can break these out into future episodes in the future. But basically, let's take and a good example of what we do is we take maybe... In your office, you have a physical data center of, say, 10 computers, um, maybe 30 users, all on a domain controller, depending on the uniqueness of the configuration. We basically will take that data center, configure it as code, and we can basically spin up that your exact data center in the Amazon cloud as many times as we want, all with a handful of clicks. So without having to individually yeah. configure 30 machines and or 10 machines and 30 users and you name it, we just go through an automation system we call Jenkins and we click a couple drop downs. We put in some input fields for labeling and we can spin up an entire, it's called a virtual private cloud in AWS. We can spin up an entire VPC mm-hmm. identically configured as many times as we want. And then when we go to make changes, 
and we, we don't want to have to walk into every single account individually that we created to make a specific change. We update our code repository and we just change the couple dropdowns and we can deploy that change across an infinite number of data centers that we stood up in the cloud. So mm-hmm. we're still a little young on this. We've been doing it since the beginning of the year and we're getting better at it. And it's just fascinating um, how this is moving because it's really, it's more than just infrastructure as code. It's, it's everything. It's security. It's individual configuration. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Well, and, you can, and if you've never done anything like this, you can kind of think of it as a installation routine that you might see on a software that you're installing where it's got to be installed on many different computers. And when it runs, it needs to take into consideration things that may already be on that machine. And then it's going to walk through all the processes, copying the files, maybe putting the config files where they need to go, creating desktop icons, um, maybe even registering it or popping up a registration. But it's really at a server level and it's at many, many different computer levels. So it's not just one machine. And it may even be setting up that interconnections between those machines. So how do those machines know how to talk to each other? And as you know, with networking, that varies from one network to the other. Like your IP addresses are going to be different. You mentioned your your um, virtual private cloud. Those IDs are going to be different. Maybe you even have different uh, keys and different access rights. So all those things need to be taken into consideration. On yeah, all absolutely. And that's, <laughs> that's a really good point. So those variations or those variables and environments are also things that can be coded into your infrastructure as code or your, in this situation, like your environment. Basically, those empty fields, we can make agnostic to the environment. So when you want to do something for a particular environment, for some sort of IP addressing scheme. Maybe one environment's using IPv4, one the other one's using mm-hmm. IPv6. That's a simple dropdown. And then there are going to be some aspects that in the process, you might have to do, have some manual intervention. But for the most part, the, the skeleton, the foundation right. is there and it's identical across all configurations. Well, a lot of these things too can work off of, like if you think of pushing data around, that can work off of external queues that may then push data in. So now you've decentralized how you need to communicate workloads across different machines. And I know you've dabbled a little bit with um, some of the AWS services like Lambda, where you've got a an essentially a stateless system that's just running, but it needs to have some states somewhere and it pulls those from queues or from databases. So on its boot up, all it really needs to know is, is where's the work coming from? And then what work am I supposed to do? And then where is that work going? So a lot of similarities between those types of platforms as well. Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly right. So if we take like the AWS environment out of the equation for a little bit and say like what this looks like kind of on-premise, uh, physical systems, physical environment, all in a, a campus or a, a big building. Um, and I'm going to use a Windows and a Linux example. So there's for Windows, what, there's what's called PowerShell DSC, desired state or desired, yeah, desired state configuration. And then there's Ansible and there's other solutions like Chef and things like that that are out there for your Linux and even Windows environments where you basically create these boilerplate templates that are a series of operations that say, okay, this is where I'm starting. And depending on what happens or what other switches are flipped in the environment, I could go multiple different directions. And then I report back to get my next command, my next step in the process. So and this is why all of this is important coming together for why the future is code. So a lot of what you've been doing with the, the code boot camps and the, the hack Sioux falls and the Adreno day and things like that, a lot of that revolves around code. Well, 
the future of code or the future being code, Jeffrey Snover, the, the inventor of PowerShell uh, at Windows, basically coined the term click next admin. And he may not be completely attributed to that term, but the click next admin is like, that's the GUI admin. Like that's the way administrators have done business up to like within the last five years. And there's nothing that you can automate about right. that or you can't very easily automate. That's just somebody who uh, has very little experience clicking the next button or hitting the enter key on the mouse over and over and over. And since we're moving this direction and we're doing things like with PowerShell DSC, being able to create three, four, five files, they're called MOF files that basically says, I don't care how many Windows instances come up on my network, you get this single configuration file. And depending on what bits you flip, I want a Windows IIS uh, internet server over here, a SQL server here, and I want them all talking together on these ports with these firewall ports punched open. And it's all as code, which means you can do the same thing over and over. Yeah. Well, and, and I've got a lot more Linux at Win- or Lindo, or Linux admin experience than Windows admin experience. And we've been doing a lot of this type of scripting for years and years because it is a lot easier to spin up new machines. And uh, sometimes it might take you weeks to get that script just the way you want it to go from a blank virtual machine all the way up to a fully processed machine that's ready to go and be added to the network. Uh, But it's just so much, uh, there's so much value on being able to run that same script over and over again. And then again, with the virtualization, you can easily roll back to the original version or a blank version, or even at individual steps if you need to, to kind of test that and walk that through. But I know it's a ton of effort to get those initial scripts created and built, but the long-term payoff is just huge. And now as you see more of an expansion in cloud providers, you know, AWS has been around for a long time, but you know, Azure is making a big play for it. Google Cloud is making a big play for it. If you ever need to move from one to the other, having those scripts is going to be a, a huge leg up to be able to to just take your stuff. And I know this is what you do all day long from one environment and move it to another without having to start from scratch and remember the 400 steps that took place to get you up to that point. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And another benefit to for certain things, when you are starting from scratch, you could very easily do the manual process and then in retrospect, go back and put it together kind of using the code. The only problem with that is if you don't kind of build the code and take what you've done already, like, right. you, could, like you said, you have the history, you have the knowledge and all these old previous configurations that you can put together to build hopefully. your new solution. Well, hopefully, yeah. So, and we'll talk shortly about what we can do and where you should be keeping those and, and how you can build off of them. But the, the benefit about maybe even building from scratch is maybe you're never going to move. Most people are never, never going to move their data centers or their information from one place to another. But let's say hypothetically you don't, bad things can still happen. You have in the nature of using code to do these sorts of deployments. And even with, um, creating your own self little functions to blink lights or anything like mm-hmm. something bad can happen to that device. And if you didn't save that code somewhere, you have no disaster recovery to kind of rebuild that system from the ground up. Now, maybe you wanted to maybe building it back from the ground up will make you do it better the second time around, but at <laughs> least then you have that starting point to look at and you don't have to like reinvent the wheel all the way from the beginning. Well, and if you do have to do it from scratch that second time, uh, you'll be pretty motivated to build that script. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Lesson learned for sure. Yeah. So are there some, some, some specific languages you mentioned uh, YAML earlier? Is there any, what does Windows use or what are your options on Windows? Well, I'm not real familiar with the Ansible Pulse solution, but strictly in Windows, it's just, it's, it's PowerShell. So it's okay. some of it, it can be C sharp or the, the MOF files are basically all written in PowerShell language functions and, and methods, all basically in, in PowerShell with, with specifically for desired state configuration. Now, I mean, you, you could create batch scripts um, that maybe tweak registry keys sure. and you could run those in your startup folder and you could keep all of that as code as well. So if you wanted to get really basic and you didn't want to configure the pull server or the push server required to do PowerShell DSC, but you wanted to run VB scripts or batch scripts yep. or you name it, Python. you could keep all of those. Yeah. Python, you could keep all of that as code as well and let that code flip the bits in your operating systems that you need to do. And then that way, Whatever mechanism you want to use to copy that code to where it needs to be on every single computer to run properly, be it group policy or any other automation, um, you know that that code's running the same on all locations. You didn't have to go in and accidentally put a a space at the end of the document or a period in the wrong spot. It should be identical across every location. Yeah. Well, and uh, again, going back to what I know a little bit better on on Linux, uh, a lot of times, even for my own use, like I've got a small Internet of Things server set up, and it's just a a Linux machine, and I've got Node-RED, MQTT, I got Nginx, and there's probably a few other services. But even for that, while it's a pretty out-of-the-box standard configuration, I have a couple of setup scripts that as I went through the process, I went ahead and essentially just did it in this script. Uh, and, and it becomes very helpful if I ever, if I lose that machine or if I want to send that to somebody else, or maybe you want to stand one up and you want to have the same configuration because there are a lot of steps. You know, some of those steps you will forget about because you're only going to do them very infrequent. So for example, on this one, I set up uh, Let's Encrypt as the SSL cert on it because I needed okay. an SSL cert. Well, I, I I had never done that before. I may never do that again on setting that up through um, both the Nginx and then I forget the other service that needed it. There were two. Um, it might've been the, the node red. Well, I'm not going to remember where those configuration files are. I'm not going to remember what each of those steps are, but by at least having those scripts, that acts as my uh, standard operating procedure documentation as well. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And those those are primary examples. I mean, even if you're referencing, and that's what's great about some of these tools we can talk about here shortly, even if you're referencing other external locations and resources for download packages, things like that, mm-hmm. those are the types of things that you might jot down on a sticky while you're going through in, um, configuring <laughs> yeah. your systems or do whatever you're doing, spill coffee on it, and then you never have that again. You're going to spend two hours again some other time trying to figure out where you got that exact package with the right version on it yep. that you needed for whatever you're installing. So you specifically, Will, where are some of the places or how do you keep track of all of this code that we've, we're talking about? Well, I do a couple of things. I mean, the first thing, like I said, I mostly do Linux. Uh, so I've got access to a lot of very easy things to do. And I'm sure you can do similar things on Windows. I'm just less familiar with them. But for example, if I needed to download it and install uh, Node-RED, I can just use the apt-get install. Uh, very simple. And it'll pull it from the repo and, and install it. But then if that program isn't in a standard repo, there's a way to add that in. Or worst case scenario, you have to do a wget and go grab the distribution, which may have a version number in it, which may be different in the future, but at least it's easy enough to change. Um, But I'll usually build a bash script 
walking through each of the steps. And I'll usually break those steps into main components, like, you know, here's the installation and then here's the configuration, uh, just so that, you know, if you needed to do them out of order or something, you've got that opportunity. But then in those bash files, I'll usually leave a URL to where I found the original startup instructions. Uh, because as you know, a lot of these things require a lot of customization. And you may not remember where the configuration files are at or even the specific steps on what the order is that you want to install them. That way, if I ever have any trouble, I can go grab them. But then those bash scripts themselves, I'll store on the machine just for reference purposes. But then I'll usually put a copy in my my local Dropbox just so that I've got that synced in case I want to open it up on another machine or take a look at it or if somebody asks me a question or worst case scenario, I lose that virtual machine itself. I can then start a new one. But I try to make all of those scripts run from a blank operating system and have as little dependencies as possible, but also run completely headless. So I can just run the script. It's not going to ask me a bunch of questions. It's just going to essentially click the next, next, next button, like you mentioned earlier, till, till the very end. And then if obviously something fails, the virtual world today, note where it failed, roll the entire virtual machine back, fix the script, run it again. Yeah. Yeah. Wash, rinse, repeat. And that's what's, that's what's great about it. The reuse and the, the quick modification or update if needed. And then you have that with you yep. uh, for the next time that you need to use it. I mean, bad things always, <laughs> always happen to me with regards to operating systems. I wish reconfiguring, and we spoke about this a little bit earlier on like well, with regards to backup, like somebody could walk away with my laptop um, and all of my data is not really gone. It's all right. somewhere in the cloud for the most part. Um, so having those scripts to basically configure the the bare minimum that I need to really get up and going on a brand new machine. Um, that's exactly one of the things that we're, we're talking about right yep. here. Well, and I've even gotten so far as to where I hardly ever change the default views of programs anymore, because if I ever want to reinstall them, I don't want to have to remember what I changed. So I kind of just live with the sucky <laughs> dis- deployment. Now, luckily a lot of programs that I use a lot will have a centralized configuration file and they know that. And so it's been pushed out. So that configuration can then be shared across multiple machines. You know, some of the obvious ones are things like Chrome and Firefox. Uh, and maybe people don't know this, but you can create an account, uh, Firefox account, and then it will automatically sync whatever changes you make to your Firefox so that if you ever need to reinstall it in the future, it will essentially pop back up to exactly the way you left it. And then if you sync the tabs, you can actually resync the tabs that were open when you uninstalled that program in the first place. Yeah, that's a, it's an amazing benefit. It's saved my bacon on a multiple occasions, especially when I'm trying to find that one bookmark right. that I saved like three months ago. And I'm either on my phone or something. I don't know where it is. Just having those bookmarks synced across yeah. all accounts oh, is, is a huge, huge, benefit. huge. Well, you mentioned a couple of times and we didn't really talk about Arduino and Raspberry Pi. And those are what now the Raspberry Pi in particular, I've done all kinds of um different projects on. And and there's another perfect example where I'll create a bash script because I'm not going to remember from one step to the next. And the big thing that comes to mind on the Raspberry Pi, and, and if you've never done this, it can be a little bit tricky to get them up and running the very first time. And it's not tricky, complicated. It's just tricky because you've got a device uh, that's essentially headless uh, if you don't have a monitor to plug into it. So how do you even get that on your network? And how do you figure out what its IP address is and get that initial bootstrapping set up so that you can SSH in. Again, I only SSH in. I hardly ever plug a monitor in. Worst case scenario, I'll have to plug a monitor in if the thing won't boot. Uh, but in general, most of these devices, when I the Raspberry Pis, when I get them fresh with an operating system on them, I have a script that I'll run 
then, I'll, then we'll go ahead and uh, set up all the network. It'll automatically put the, the common SSIDs that I use into it and then reboot the device so that it'll come on the network. And then I can take a quick look at my router to see what IP address it pulled. And then I can SSH into it so it can go from a blank state to boot up into my network without me needing to plug that device into a monitor and a keyboard to, to do anything with. And that saves a ton of time if you're going to be doing quite a bit of these things. But even a little device like that Raspberry Pi, just so valuable to have those scripts. Yeah, just the, the power of automation. Like you said, saving saving the time. Like it's it's fun the first time. It's like it's like staining your deck, right? You, <laughs> okay, I've done it once. on this one, but okay. No, I was just, I was just going to say like once you do it once and prove to yourself that you can do it, like it's not necessarily as much fun doing it again over and over and over every time. You're either going to, in the context of standing deck specifically for me, I paid somebody to do it the second time around when I did it. So if I can, I know that I can build the code from the ground up. And once I have it working and it's working within the bounds that I, I need it to work, I save it. I save it somewhere. And and sometimes, and I know you've had to have come across this. You've mentioned fixing certain things you couldn't find documented yeah. anywhere. Then sharing that. Because once you have it in a document, you don't have to necessarily explain it. Other people who understand code can look at it and leverage it. And you can leverage other people's code with regards to your code as well. No, for sure. Yeah. And even just some simple guys, like if you, again, back to the Raspberry Pi example, because there's a lot of great documentation. But if you just go out and Google or DuckDuckGo, things like Raspberry Pi adding to Wi-Fi, you'll find some really great uh, guides that'll walk you through that step by step. And and I'm always surprised that there's not just a quick script that you can just copy paste and run, because that's essentially what I end up creating. Now on a device like that, and this is true for a lot of the Linux, and and I know you can do this on Windows too, is a lot of times I'll just run all those by hand, figure out you know, if there's a different parameter or a different tweak that needs to be done. And then I'll dump out the history that I just ran. And then I'll just cherry pick out the correct answers in the end, the last one that worked. <laughs> and then build yeah. my bash script from that, add in any appropriate documentation that's needed. And then I've got that startup script. I've got whatever that installation configuration script is. And then I'll make a copy of it for, for long-term persistence use in case I need to come back and do it again. Um, but it, like you mentioned earlier, I mean, this has uh, come up very, very handy. I, I, I Frequently, I've had to reinstall a machine for whatever reason, and they've saved my butt many times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, so you've you mentioned a couple of times you have you make a copy of it and you save it somewhere. Now, you mentioned Dropbox, you save it locally. There are some tools out there that I just wanted to talk to as we start. Right sort of wrapping up here, just some, some lessons of like the idea of all of this future of code stuff is, is one, a lot of our listeners or the, the people that come to your events and your trainings, like they're writing this code. Um, I'm not exactly sure where <clears throat> the individuals are leaving their code themselves, but there are some tools out there that allow you to do that. And a lot of them are free. There's um, GitHub mm-hmm. and GitLab. They're competitors, but they're both very, very similar. They're, they use the, the Git, um, configuration language, basically communicate and push code to projects or repositories. So um, one of the, one of the things that, I mean, I'm no Git expert by any means, but as people are learning to code, I recommend that people start looking at the basics of using Git and then using these code repositories, these, these source code projects, because what happens when you use them, you actually commit to them and it keeps a history 
of every single thing that you've ever done. Every time you basically save the file to either GitHub or GitLab, for example, um, the previous version is saved in, in, in the commit history. So it's like revision history in doc, Dropbox. It is. And here's another huge benefit. And I do use GitHub uh, for a lot of projects. And I don't have all of my stuff public. In fact, I've got probably more private repos than I do public repos. But here's the other interesting challenge that that I run into that I use GitHub to solve. And that is, how do I get that script on the machine itself? Now, if it's just 20 lines, and again, we're dealing with uh, something like SSH or remote desktop. You can just copy paste the text in and save it locally. Not a big deal. But if you have a whole bunch of configuration files, or maybe there's some binaries that you can't, that you need to get bootstrapped to get that machine up and running, a great solution is, is to check all of that into your po- private repo or public if it's not something that's proprietary. Now, on that remote machine, you can just essentially do a git checkout. Um, or clone is what they actually call it, and then have all those local files sync down to that machine, including your bash scripts, and then run your script, and then it'll have everything it needs to run without any issues. And I've done that many times, and that's actually how I have some of the Raspberry Pi stuff set up, uh, just because with SSH, it's a lot harder to copy a bunch of files. If it's just one, it's not a big deal. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an excellent point. And that kind of segues into a topic for a completely different episode, but basically that continuous integration, continuous deployment, sort of events-based type thing where you're you're just basically pulling down a huge repository that does all of the, the previously manual configuration steps for you. And you don't have to have that locally. You just know like, okay, it's at github.com slash whatever your project name is, and you do yep. a clone of that and you run it locally and everything's off and yes. running. So that's, these are really fantastic tools for that. Well, and if you're as part of a team too, where you might have three or four people working on it, you really need that um, that source code repository, and you know, it gets a great one to use. Uh, I've been using Git for years. Uh, I don't know. You said you're not an expert on it. Do you guys use it for anything, or what are you guys using? We we do use it. We have our own self-hosted GitLab uh, instance, and I mean, I can push merge. Uh, commit all that other stuff. I, I'm definitely getting better at it. I'm probably 75 of the percent way there. I mean, it, but hey, don't get me wrong. I've been using it for years, and there's probably four commands that I use. That, well, yeah, that, that's it. That's that, I mean, for what I need to do, I'm 75 percent of the way way there. There's when it comes to command line merge conflicts and things like that. I still have to. I cheat and I have to go to the GUI oh, and yeah. I have to look at. I mean, I'm not great by any means that way, but. There's a lot to learn there, and the, the, but the basics are really all you need, especially if you're saving your own code. If you're not collaborating on something, you don't have to worry about bumping in and having conflicts with other people's commits by any means. But yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And even just uh, like I said, working remote, like I sometimes will be working with people that aren't as technical and they need to get a Raspberry Pi up and running. Well, rather than trying to walk them through the steps, I can just say, well, just run these three commands. And, they, and they're, they're short enough that they can physically type them in if they don't even know how to copy paste back and, fat, back and forth between an SSH console. And that'll bootstrap enough of it to get things up and running. But I'll usually use the my, a, a Git repo for that purpose. Uh, the only thing you need to do in that case is install Git, which is just one command, and then type in the clone command, and then type in whatever my bash script is to, to get it all running. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You mentioned you have so so. I'm guess that's right there. That's a that's an example of uh, a public project or a public repo. Uh, you mentioned you have more private probably than public. I'm the same yes. way, but the reason why that is is because the stuff that I have private, I really too embarrassed to let the public see, <laughs> <laughs> for the most part. But 
so just like, do you have everything in GitHub? Like, do you have a paid GitHub environment or how do you keep your, because GitHub, the free version only right. lets you have public repositories. So where no, do you I, have your, yeah, I do, I have a private, I have a paid account and it's, I don't remember what it is, 60 bucks a year, 80 bucks a year. I can't remember what it is. Well worth the money. Um, but I, I do have, I don't know, dozens of private repos. Some of them are uh, just for my own use, uh, things that may never go anywhere, but they're just that extra repository. And as we briefly touched on in a previous episode, I mean, I love to have everything in version control, but then also accessible across multiple machines. So even though I have most of this code, probably 100% of this code in Dropbox that's auto-synced, having that GitHub is is almost like that, okay, it's crossed that threshold of, you know, I know it works perfectly and I can reliably use it, gets pushed into GitHub. Yeah. And just from a student standpoint, building a portfolio using a tool like GitHub or GitLab. Now I use both um, because not necessarily because I'm cheap, but I like to know how the different platforms work. So GitLab and GitHub both have free versions. GitHub only allows you to do public repos, but GitLab lets you do private and public. Um, If anybody listening wanted to kind of keep certain things to themselves, at least for a little while while they're building them. But when you build that portfolio, then you have a place to link future, like maybe you're going to do an, uh, uh, an internship or you're applying for jobs in the future. Some places, especially if you're applying for development jobs, are going to ask for a portfolio or like, what have you done in the past? Yeah. And when you have something that you know is like 99% there, like you said, like it really works, you want to put it out there. Those locations are great places for it. GitHub also has what they call, or GIS which are like little mm-hmm. tiny segments or pieces of files. So I might have a small, single, one-line script of JavaScript code that I want to use, but it's not necessarily worthy of an entire GitHub project. I say multiple gists. For example, there's a couple of websites that I frequent that I want to filter out a lot of noise on the website. Well, I have this one line that I just do JavaScript colon that I paste into the address bar. And it, it, in real time, I can manipulate the way the data on the website is presented to me. I keep that in a gist. So there's a lot of really cool tools out there that getting started now, building that portfolio and having those cool little unique one-liner scripts or you name it, all consolidated will really help in the future. And it, it's always nice to be able to go back from a learning standpoint and remember like, oh, two things. One, that's how I got it to work before. Now I can do it this way. And two is like, holy cow, that's terrible. I'm right. way better now. And look how far I've gone, right? Yeah. Well, and if you do use Git, and I'm not familiar with the the other one uh, that you mentioned, uh, that they do have the the README format, the, um, the minimum markup. I forget what it's MD. I forget what it stands for. Uh, but that also allows you to create very simple documentation uh, to push in as well. So if you need needed to have that readme file to remind you what you're doing, you can. And then another thing that I don't use as often, but I have used it, is they do, each of your Git projects does have a bug report or a bug um, database that goes along with it. So if you do get to a point where you want to publish that and you want to invite people to come use your scripts, there is an opportunity for them to submit bugs back to you. And then again, as part of the whole community, others might jump in and, and fix those bugs and, and do new push requests for you. Yeah, that's that's where things really get fun. When somebody accidentally stumbles upon right. your solution and next thing you know, you get a, an issue request or a bug report for like, hey, I forked your project and it breaks here. Like, oh. Right. Thank you. I didn't even know that. Yeah, and and it's just, and it, if people don't know, yeah. forking a project's a good thing. It sounds negative. It does. It does. Yes. <laughs> 
Fork is basically <laughs> Will copying my project to do to make the changes that he wants to, and it doesn't impact my project at all. And if he does something really cool that I'm interested in, I'm like, hey, I want to bring that back over to my project. I can actually pull his changes back into my project and include what he's done. Yep. So I think we could do a whole episode just on Git. Actually. Yeah, we'll have to find somebody that knows how how to do it though. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, great. Uh, were there any other resources you were going to list here on the show notes for people to come back and take a look at? No, I think in the show notes, there'll be just a really brief, I found a really fun little bare minimums Git guide that we'll put in the list and then some resources based on like why code is the future and, and how it can be used. I mean, not necessarily tied to just AWS, but any of the Adreno Raspberry Pi and just notes that it's, it's a really good place to get started. If, if you're a student and you're working on development uh, and you don't really have a place to save this stuff, um, getting involved or going to gitlab.com, github.com, create a free account and you can start saving code there. And if you don't know Git right away, they both have great GUIs to just copy and paste your code into and you have the source control, the versioning right. all included right there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think also some of the the key takeaways here today would be if you're doing anything with remote servers that may or may not scale in the future, I think it's highly recommended to build some of those scripts and and kind of set yourself up to succeed on automation or on automating the process of getting those new machines up and running. And then also pull those scripts offline so you don't lose them in case you lose the entire virtual machine and then storing things into um, a source repo like uh, like Git or Dropbox or a combination of the two are, are super valuable. Yeah, for sure. That That's the one thing. It's kind of like working on a Word document. Word now saves frequently for you in case something bad happens. You can always just push where yep. where you're at, when you're at it, and then you have it to that point in case something happens and it's there. So. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, thanks, Ross. Well, thanks for joining us today. If you have not left a review on Apple, we'd love to have you give us a big five stars. And as always, you can join the conversation over on our Facebook page. Just search for Go Hack Something. To subscribe, head over to wherever you get your podcasts or go to gohacksomething.com and you should be able to find us there. So thanks and everybody can go hack something.